God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh. Our Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Amen. Amen. Oh, it's so good to be with you. It's good to be with you. And Susan is like really jealous because she said, you're going to go? And I'm in Florida that weekend. And I said, well, baby, you're going to be with our grandson. So I almost was going to cancel to say, well, can I do it a different time? Because she really wants to be here. But um, we're, we're glad to be with you. Um, it's a blessing. And I have this honor of being able to share in God's word with you. And I'm excited about that. I uh, noticed when you put the picture up of me that I was wearing the exact same tie in that picture. I thought, I need more ties, but, or no ties. <laughs> I also want to extend a word of appreciation to both the staff team and leadership team at Newcom. Oh my goodness, yeah, I do. I had... I just had this privilege of sitting in the joint um, working retreat on Friday evening and yesterday, Saturday, and, and, um, and some of you don't know me, so I was going to preface by saying I'll be straight with you, but I think that's just how I am. I'm from New York. I don't know how not to be straight with you. Um, I've been in church work for a long time. Sometimes I forget how long, over three decades, sorry. And transitions are not easy. And our sister Emily just said a, a bit about that earlier during the announcements. Trans transitions are difficult, especially when a founding pastor leaves. So there are all sorts of issues to navigate related to, the, to that interim period between one pastor leaving and a new pastor coming. And uh, a multi-ethnic and multicultural church context provide even more um, opportunities as well as challenges, complexities, if you will. Because there are a variety of expectations. People come from different backgrounds, like Brother Dan was saying, including different church experiences. And I witness your leadership engage in honest and courageous conversations that transcended individual personalities, and they touched on how best to communicate, how to make sure all voices are heard and valued, and, and how to care for each other during th that time. And, I mean, I don't know if they know it, but that doesn't always happen. So I got to witness that. Yeah, amen. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've been part of transitions, and I know for some people that interim period just feels like it's dragging on. Just get somebody, get, you know, it's delicate work. Because there, there have been churches that hired pastors really quickly or have pastors placed there, and depending on the denomination only to have that person face so many challenges that they left rather quickly. In church ministry world, we call that an unintentional interim because they were hired uh, not to be interim. And the church moved really quickly when they got that person, and the issues below the surface weren't dealt with until the new person came, and people were hoping, well, they'll deal with it when they get here. And it was way worse than they imagined, so they left. And, but, so it's very clearly evident to me that your leadership team and staff love this church. I mean, they're spending all kinds of time and energy to ensure that they are on the same page under the Holy Spirit's direction. They can guide this interim process that everyone can be excited about. They had no idea I was going to say all of that. But I'm telling you, I got to see it. I'm excited 
about what God has in store for this church. That, that membership video is like my sermon, so I might be quicker than I had intended because what folks said in there was, was awesome. If I were a younger person, I'd be mailing my resume over here because I said, man, God's doing something really special here. Who would not want to be part of that? Amen. Amen. So keep praying for your staff and leadership team, their energy, their wisdom, their clarity and communication, balance in their lives. In fact, I want to take a moment to pray for them right now. Lord, it's with hearts of gratitude that we come. We, we are, have been struggling in so many different ways, and uh, the pandemic has made life complicated and confusing. And then to go through transition, but Lord, how beautiful it was to hear people calling church family and home and friendships and community and all these wonderful metaphors for how you are forming something, shaping something. And Lord, in the new thing that's coming out of this time, I pray that you would give all this whole church community the wisdom, the strength, but I pray particularly now for the staff team and the leadership team that, that together and even in their own huddles that they would find the, the strength, the ability to listen to your voice, to say what needs to be said, to hold... Um, uh, confidence when that needs to happen, to speak boldly, to, to listen well, to do all that needs to happen when you're thinking about important things. But I pray for them as whole people, <laughs> that they're not just machines calculating a new outcome. They are people. And I pray for their families, for their strength, for balance in life, for good rhythm, for health. And as they model all that for the rest of us, I pray that we would all be nourished by watching these leaders um, exercise the humility and grace needed to, uh, to shepherd well. So I pray for your will to be done in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, we're going to spend a little time in the book of Philippians. It's one of my favorite Letters. You know, I say that every time I talk about a passage of Scripture. So I have a lot of favorites. At the moment, this is my favorite. <clears throat> so we'll spend some time. We won't get to look at the whole book in detail. So you come to seminary where we can experience things in detail. A little plug for North Park Theological Seminary. If you get a chance, take a class. But for right now, we'll, we'll go through uh, the four chapters over these four weeks. As we get started, do you remember this television show? Some of you do. I think you'll see. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't watch it that much because I didn't, you know, don't watch a whole lot of network TV. My kids watch it. It seems that at the end of every episode, Jeff would give a sort of pep talk to the study group at Greendale Community College. And one of the things that I think people liked about the show is that that study group, a mixed bag of quirky people, was willing to be connected, to have meaningful relationships, to be more than just individuals around a table. They wanted to be a community, I mean, right? That's the point. So here we are. And from your website, New Community Covenant Church is a multi-ethnic and multicultural church located in the Logan Square community of Chicago. True, but perhaps also a mixed bag of quirky people, just like those characters at Greendale Community College. But despite the quirks, or maybe in light of the quirks, 
we are also part of a movement. The movement of the Holy Spirit in the world some 2,000 years after the Spirit came in fullness at Pentecost. We followers of Jesus are part of a movement, but our movement will have little effect on our world if we're not connected, connected to God and to each other. So if you want to be agents of change in the world and change in Chicago, you need to be connected. And I've learned over these years that no church will perform healthy, transformative work in the neighborhoods if they're not connected to Jesus and also to each other. I think I'm emphasizing what you already know. We need each other. As the great vocalist Al Jarreau sang, we're in this love together. Well, it's kind of like that. So during this month, I trust that we'll take some lessons from this book of Philippians that we'll appreciate, we'll strive for, we'll celebrate the power of togetherness, because being together in one spirit is emphasized throughout this book. So I'm hoping that I can offer some words of encouragement in your journey to strengthen and be part of this community, to pride and correct as necessary so that our sense of community can be even more dynamic and compelling. So the Apostle Paul wrote this short letter to a church that he started in Philippi. I won't uh, get into all the background of the church or of Philippi, but I'm going to mention some background things over the course of the month. Right now, I just want to highlight a few things about the Philippians that come from the book of Acts chapter 16. Now if you've been in church for a while, you might know that the book of Acts does chronicle much of Paul's travels, the Apostle Paul's travels, and then his letters are often read in in conjunction with that book of Acts because he's writing in many cases, not every case, to churches that he started. Quick summary from Acts chapter 16, which you can read later. Paul and his ministry partners, they met up with Lydia, local businesswoman who was holding a prayer meeting, Bible study down by the riverside, and she and her whole household uh, became followers of Jesus, and she invited Paul and his entourage to stay in her home. This is interesting. She must have been wealthy, had a big house. Um, I just want to point out quickly, we often talk about men as the heads of the households, the paterfamilias is the term we use, right? But we don't even see that kind of person here. It's Lydia who has the house and has the business. She's the center of attention here, but that will be for yet another sermon. All right. Later on, Paul and Silas get arrested as a result of their ministry activities. There's this miraculous incident in prison when the two men were singing praises to God at midnight. A lot happens at midnight, a lot of good stuff about, oh, I gotta wait till the midnight hour. Because at the midnight hour, powerful things happen at midnight. And there was an earthquake. The shackles fell off. The frightened warden went to kill himself. Paul stopped him. The whole um, family of that jailer came to faith in Jesus, they get baptized, they become members of this Philippian church. So the the church grew from this interesting mix of people, and now a few years later, the Apostle Paul writes to express his joy over this church, to thank them for sharing with him in ministry, and the church in Philippi was apparently not as, you know, especially problematic like those Corinthians, but the Philippians seemed to be doing pretty well, but even so, Paul had a lot to say to them about unity, about joy, about service, about having a heavenly perspective while living on earth. So with that brief background in mind, let's look at the opening letters, uh, words rather, of this ancient letter. I'm going to start at Philippians chapter 1 and read the first 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from this first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So right away, Paul is using a word that I mentioned to you way back in October when I was here, and we were going through that book called 1 John. In verses 5 and 7, and then we'll see a lot of other places, Paul uses this word koinonia, often translated fellowship or partnership. Very common word, most frequently used by Paul in the New Testament. And as I mentioned back in October, it's, it's, that word koinonia is about connection. I often like to translate it as solidarity. So we know it is more than snacks and coffee. There's a level of sharing and caring that goes well beyond the superficial. So koinonia can even require some level of sacrifice that's based on love. Yeah, sacrifice of time, of energy, of personal preference, of laying aside any selfish agendas. But then there's this payoff for making sacrifice. The payoff is a dynamic, loving, joy-filled community. Paul, who was in prison when he wrote this letter, understood what it meant to make sacrifice. Yet he says right in verses 3 and 4 that he's filled with joy whenever he thinks about this church in Philippi. His joy flows out of solidarity, out of koinonia. So one point, my first point, a takeaway maybe, is that I want, I want to emphasize that being together in one spirit brings joy. On, being together in one spirit brings joy. Now, I don't, I don't mean to uh, trigger anyone, but we might have difficulty imagining joy in togetherness if you don't have good models for it. <clears throat> I'm a sensitive person, I'll admit it. Yeah, I cry a lot. Home was not a haven for me when I was a child. I'm not going to elaborate here. Y'all don't know me that well. But the challenge is, you're allowed to laugh. And, oh, I guess it wasn't funny. Okay, so <laughs> I won't elaborate, but the challenges of my childhood caused me to crave meaningful and trustworthy connections. I think that's one reason why I actually like playing sports a lot. And, you know, I was captain of my high school football team, then they voted me captain of the wrestling team, and I, I played in the band and did a lot of things to, I guess they kept me out of the house for a while, because I found some degree of joy in being part of a group, part of teams, especially when we're moving in the same direction. Years later, my father was getting remarried and asked me to perform his wedding. It was actually the first wedding I did coming out of seminary. My mother had been deceased for about 10 years at that point, and so my dad told me that he and his fiancée um, were getting married, so I said they had to come for premarital counseling. He started laughing. <laughs> I said, well, just one meeting. I said, <laughs> I just wanted to make sure we're on the same page. And, but I asked them, 
what about, what did they learn from their first marriage that they were like bringing into this new marriage? And my father readily said he hoped to be more united with his wife, to feel like they were moving and working in the same direction. Now, I didn't comment, but of course, it made me think about my childhood and the ongoing tensions in our house. My siblings and I, at least the older ones, we could sense that our parents were not working toward the same goals. And then the church in my childhood didn't help me to find joy either. I mean, it was a self-righteous, judgmental spirit there, and and, and the presentation of an angry God waiting for me to get my act together made me afraid to be myself. So joy was elusive. And here Paul is talking about being joyful because the Philippians are partners with him in propagating the gospel. Sisters and brothers, I am hoping that we can all have a similar sense of joy that Paul found. And don't miss the fact that he's in prison when he writes this letter. Yet he still can have joy because his relationship with Jesus and with his sisters and brothers transcends his circumstances. His connections are greater than his challenges. His relationships are greater than his obstacles. His people are more important than his problems. Can you say this? Can you say that you found joy even during a pandemic? Has your community been moving toward a beloved community? Has your your circle of sisters and brothers, your pod, been life-giving? In the prison of this COVID pestilence, let's strive for joy. Not through Netflix, not through drinking too much alcohol, not through soothing ourselves with food or through some other artificial source of comfort. We need the joy of koinonia. We need, we need our sisters and brothers. We need Jesus. We want joyful solidarity. Amen. When we have this joyful solidarity, people will feel it. It will be contagious. Some churches are notorious for fighting everything. They fight what's new in the neighborhood. They fight with other Christians. They fight among themselves. I mean, if you're not on Twitter, don't bother, because there's like a lot of that, you know. Famous for turf battles, developing factions, pulling in opposing directions. It does not have to be that way. Partnerships can produce joy. The pragmatic part of me, I mean, I do have an engineering degree. I do think the pragmatic questions, maybe you have them too. Like, well, how do we get this joyful solidarity? And I'm glad you asked, because we're going to be talking about it all month. It's not a one-time event. It's not a one-time event. But I'll say right now that joyful solidarity requires not just proximity, but humility, respect, patience. Well, there's a second point that comes from Paul's prayer as he's at the beginning here. So he expresses his thanks and then he tells them about his prayer. And it's in verse 6. We saw that Paul has already recollected his joy, right, when he's Uh, talks about being together in one spirit. And now we see in verse 6, he expresses his confidence. And that's my second point. He says being together in one spirit really increases confidence in God's power and presence. He says in verse 6 that he has confidence that God's doing this good work among the Philippians, and God will bring fruit from that work that he started. As I'm making this point, I am going to make a quick comparison of, um, of words for you because I'm using the NRSV today, New Revised Standard Version, and it has that expression, among you, in there, which is a great translation. I didn't know if that was big enough or not. It's, it's, it's a 
fine way, and it's how this expression is often translated. So what's supposed to be, yeah, in yellow and italicized there, I emphasize, the NRSV says, among you. Now, two other popular English translations I just put up there for comparison. You didn't know this was going to be like seminary class, didn't you? But it's going to get to a point here. NIV, ESV, I just happened to pick those two. They say, in you. And I dare say that many of us who know this verse in our lives or heard it in church, we heard it that way, he who began a good work in you. But you're noticing the difference, I think. The expression in you has often been read through a very American individualistic perspective. We typically ignore the fact that you is plural. We don't even notice it in those other translations. I've almost always heard this verse encouraging readers to focus on their personal relationship with God, so much so that they could fall into this trap of thinking that the Christian race is a solo event. We have often been taking this, this verse to be some sort of statement about personal piety, not a statement about God building a community. It's been sometimes used to feed into ideas that are self-centered, <clears throat> excuse me, and it has us thinking that everything, you know, is about me, 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 and for me. But in Scripture, it's not always me. Instead, it's frequently we. This is the reality. From Genesis to Revelation, the story of the Bible is about God drawing creation back into relationship with itself, people with people, people with the land, and with God. God is about community. God started a spiritual work among the Philippians, and Paul is confident that God's work will continue. Remember the late John Lewis? A congressman from Georgia was a leader in the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. He talked about making good trouble. He wrote a memoir of the civil rights movement entitled Walking with the Wind. In a chapter that focuses, <clears throat> excuse me, on the escalation of public protest during the 60s, Representative Lewis discusses Birmingham, Alabama. And he notes how there were 65 consecutive nightly mass meetings, 65, that's over two months of church. They were church services used to get folks ready for the protest. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference brought in leaders to organize sit-ins, boycotts, mass marches, rallies. One of those leaders was a, was a Reverend James Bevel, and I'll mention him in a minute. But you might know that Dr. Martin Luther King was arrested in Birmingham on Good Friday. And it was from that jailhouse that Dr. King wrote in the margins of scraps of newspaper. He was writing in response to white Christian clergy who had accused him of being a communist and causing more harm than good. The scraps of newspaper with Dr. King's writings were smuggled out of the prison. We know them as Letter from a Birmingham Jail, one of Dr. King's most famous writings. We'll talk more about that letter as the weeks progress, but right now I just want to acknowledge some things that Representative Lewis says about this time in Birmingham. He writes this, while King was in jail, Reverend James Bevel was busy organizing and training a huge army of Birmingham's children. He went into local black schools and churches to teach hundreds of teenagers the techniques of nonviolence. You might know that some of the most stirring images of the civil rights movement were the pictures of Sheriff Bull Connor's officers and dogs attacking the protesters in Birmingham, like this one that I'll show you. But there are, of course, many pictures like that, and many of the demonstrators were young people. But what I want to focus on right now is that phrase that Mr. Lewis writes, while King was in prison. This stands out to me. The most famous icon of the civil rights movement is Dr. King. But there was a time when Dr. King was not out on the street but in a jail cell, <clears throat> and the movement did not stop. 
I mean, this is important to grasp. It's relevant for us right now. Representative Lewis writes that he and other leaders were encouraging people all along to do what they knew to be right, even if the leaders of the movement were not present. He went on to write this, you don't have to wait until Roy Wilkins comes to Jackson. You don't have to wait until Martin Luther King comes to Macomb. You can do it yourself. There's no more powerful force than you. There's no leader as powerful as you if you pull together. So this sentiment, that's an echo of what we're seeing Paul say way back to, in the first century to the Philippians. The civil rights movement didn't stop when Dr. King was in jail because people had learned from him. They had learned from others. In a similar way, Paul admonishes the church in Philippi while he's in prison. What he says in verse 6 reminds me of what happened in Birmingham. Paul is confident that even though he's not present with his beloved congregation that he started, God is still at work among them. God will finish what he started. God will carry out his plans through a people who are willing to work together and do what they've been called to do. They didn't have to wait for Paul to get out of prison. Paul knows that God is not finished with these people. Paul's confident, confident that even with him in chains, God will do his work. Are you seeing maybe in some ways how this Philippian situation might relate to us? <laughs> At least I hope you are. <clears throat> you are New Community Covenant Church. Yes, you're made up of individuals, but you are a unit, a community, a family even, celebrating your diversity, ethnic backgrounds, educational levels, income levels, ages, all that and more, you are called to be this united people of God. So look for, celebrate God's work among you as a community, not just solely what's happening in individual lives. So as we work our way through Paul's opening prayer here and his, his reflections of this community, you can't help but to notice how emotional he is. I like that because people have all kinds of opinions about Paul, but he's He's, he's showing us that partnership is not just formal, like we have this written agreement between us, right? You'll send me some money, I'll go preach the gospel. This is, a, this is visceral. This, there, there are feelings here. This is not just the pragmatics. I mean, on one level, we might say, well, look, I have to work with these people. I'll just be cool and I'll deal with it. Real fellowship admits there are differences. Admits that we might not like things about another member of the community. I mean, when we get to chapter four, Paul's going to name names. <laughs> I mean, in front of everybody. I mean, don't forget that the letter gets read out loud. And he says, I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche, and I actually pointed in different directions because in my imagination, they're sitting in different places in the house, you know, <laughs> in the house church. Um, but he says real fellowship admits there are differences, admits that we might not like things, but we learn to love our sisters and brothers. So if you were to read verses 7 and 8 again, you just see all this kind of emotional language. You hold me in your heart. He says, I, I have this compassion with, with you. That's another interesting thing. I'm not going to bog down with words, but um, in, in the Greek language, you know, this uh, ancient Greek anyway, compassion, the old King James says bowels of mercy because, you know, that's the word for those deep feelings. It's the word for intestines. So he says, I moved in my intestines. That's when you see those kinds of words in the New Testament. But that's where you feel it, right? In your gut. He says, I, I feel this for you. And then he goes on to say, after he's expressed joy, after he's expressed his confidence that God's at work, he goes on to share 
what he prays about in verses 9 to 11. There's a lot in that prayer, but I'm going to summarize it in one point and say my final point is that being together in one spirit stimulates fruitfulness. So one of the blessings of getting older, and we older people, we, we tend to count our blessings a lot because we can recall a lot of bad stuff. And when we start counting our blessings, we say, oh yeah, that's a good counterbalance to all the misery and strife that we've gone through. So, so we count our blessings a lot. And one of the blessings I think about as an older person are the people I've met over the years. I planted a church called New Community in Brooklyn, New York back in 1989. But it folded a little over five years later. And then December of 1994, our young family, my wife Susan, our kids, Jonathan, Jason, Joanna, and Jessica, we made our way to Washington, D.C. I served the church on Capitol Hill for six years, enjoying some wonderful times of ministry alongside some of the most painful experiences of my life. Our family moved from Capitol Hill to a struggling community east of the Anacostia River in southeast D.C., and a small Bible study that was meeting in our home incorporated became Peace Fellowship Church, which continues to do wonderful ministry in D.C. After 11 years of Peace Fellowship Church, I accepted a call to serve as the second senior pastor at the Sanctuary Covenant Church following the amazing Pastor Ephraim Smith. I can tell you that it was a character-building experience for me to follow the founding pastor. I did not want to be an unintentional interim. <laughs> but that's yet another story. <clears throat> and along the way, you figured out, I earned a PhD in Biblical Studies, I taught Biblical Greek, New Testament, Old Testament. So God allowed me to meet in those years hundreds of people who serve God in a variety of ways. <clears throat> excuse me. Some people serve the Lord. Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Probably just too much coffee in the morning. But people serve the Lord while, while at the same time they were dealing with sad and difficult things in their lives. But these people ministered to those living on the streets, to people who'd been trafficked, to new residents to the U.S. trying to find their way, to formerly incarcerated people, to people plagued by addictions, to people victimized by abuse, to elderly people, to children, I mean, the list goes on. And the heroes of the faith that I'm talking about were certainly not all pastors. They were school teachers, nurses, police officers, physicians, social workers, campus ministers, lawyers, office workers, so-called blue-collar as well as white-collar professionals. These people produced, in Paul's words, a harvest of righteousness, which can encompass many things. You too are God's masterpieces, created for good works in Christ Jesus. God wants you to continue growing as a strong community. Be like the Philippians. Be a source of joy to each other because of your partnership. Have confidence that God is working among the entire community, and God is not finished with you yet. <clears throat> God has great plans in store for you all, and as you love each other, and not just tolerate each other, you will do amazing things together that will demonstrate to our city of Chicago that the Holy Spirit is alive and active. Our neighbors will see that we are indeed the Lord's people. They will know we are disciples of Jesus because of our love for one another and because of our love for our neighbors. So I want you to use your imagination right now. And as I close out, I just want you to take a few minutes to try not to worry about anything. Put it out your mind for a moment if that's possible. If you've got to close your eyes, you could do that. It's safe and cool to do that. And what I want you to do in using your imagination is to visualize 
New Community Covenant Church experiencing this solidarity of which I'm speaking, this togetherness in one spirit. So let the Lord bring to mind pictures, episodes, scenes, even memories. Don't speak it out loud yet, but what are you seeing? What is, what is happening in your small group? How, how are you interacting with neighbors who don't worship here? What priorities are showing up in the church's budget? How are you mobilizing when there's a crisis? Are the children laughing? Are the teenagers empowered? What, what entrepreneurial opportunities are being created? Do you feel the energy in your communal prayer gatherings? What, what families are being healed and delivered <clears throat> from strongholds of sin and shame? Are you hearing those testimonies of people on the path to wholeness? See, I'm sure that you're imagining way more than I am because you're more familiar with this community than I am, but, but I'm asking you to believe that God is bringing a harvest of righteousness that looks like those dreams you're having, maybe even more than that. So my sisters and brothers, I'm not asking you to make any hasty promise or any emotional response, but I do ask you to consider what is your commitment to being united in one spirit here? Will you open yourself yet again to the joy of solidarity, to a confident expectation that God is doing something, has started something, continues to do something, and that God is bringing all manner of fruit, a harvest of righteousness? Let me pray. Lord, we give you thanks because you're good and your mercies endure forever. <clears throat> Lord, I am grateful for your word, your people, for the example of your ancient peoples from so long ago that still speaks to us today. Lord, whatever it was like in Philippi, we can only imagine it, but we can understand some of these things that Paul is talking about, and we want them ourselves. We want that joy. We want that confident expectation that you are at work here. We want to see the fruitfulness in our lives, in our life together. So I pray that, Lord God, for a new community church right now. I pray, Lord God, for your spirit to continue to knit this community together. And as they discern together, as they learn together, as they grow together, let, let them experience the joy and you be glorified. I pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. We thank God for his word today. Thank you, Pastor. Would you stand on your feet with us and sing what is probably a great response to you?